This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for June 5th, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard. In this week's show, David Grimm talks to Sarah Crespi about the week's most interesting online news stories. Alexei Bolinsky will discuss friction at the atomic level. And finally, we'll hear from Braxton Boren about the acoustics of historical speeches. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our online daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up, we have a story on the vital role the game Rock, Paper, Scissors plays in biology. What's your favorite version of Rock, Paper, Scissors? Uh, Mine, if you've heard of it, is Hunter Bear Ninja, (laughs) where Hunter shoots bear, bear eats ninja, and ninja kills the hunter. Or how about the lizard version, Dave? What are the three components when lizards play this game? The lizard game is aggression, cooperation, and deception. And much like the traditional rock, paper, scissors, each tactic can beat one and lose to another. The winning here is not just sort of throwing your hands up in the air and saying, I won, but actually making babies. So there's sort of much more at stake for lizards than there is for us. And so biologists have studied this game in lizards over multiple encounters and multiple generations, but using a game in the laboratory. What did they find out when they did that? Well, what they really wanted to see was, you know, how did these different strategies balance these other in nature, and can we develop a mathematical model that can give us a sense of how these things evolve? And they created this game, as you said, Sarah, and basically what they had is they had a game where a third of the players would use each strategy, consistently use the strategy, and if they won, they would give, quote-unquote, birth to players who would also use the same strategy. So they were always scissors, no matter what happened to them. Exactly. And their offspring were as well, assuming they were winning. And when they did this, they found a couple of different outcomes. One was that there was this so-called stable state in which a third of players always used the same strategy. But there was also wild fluctuations in which one strategy nearly disappeared and then rebounded and the other strategies almost disappeared. And now getting to the newest study, they added mutation into the mix. 
What do they mean by mutation and what effect did that have? Well, the mutation comes with the offspring because before when a scissors player, say, would win, the offspring of that player would always be scissors. But in the modified version, the researchers added what they call these mutants, which basically are these mutant offspring, which decide to do differently than their parents. So if their parents always use scissors, maybe they would use rock or maybe they would use papers. Exactly. And what effect did these mutations have on the resulting population? Well, this time they saw something kind of in between where they did not see these wild fluctuations or these steady states, but they saw sort of this gradual moving to one state or the other. What was really interesting is when there was even a little bit of mutation that the researchers put in there, it really kept the game, even that little bit of mutation kept the game from spiraling into these sort of more consistent steady states. And what about out in the wild? How do these models match up with how the game is played by loose lizards? What they find is kind of similar to their studies. Some strategies can become ingrained, but over time, they start to see fluctuations with no strategy really winning out over the other. And that kind of agrees with some of the models that researchers propose. Next up, we have a story on synthetic bacterial sleuths. It's really difficult to find cancer in the body early and safely. Wouldn't it be great if there was a tiny organism inside of you that could take a look around and send out a message if they encounter any bad guys? I know, it sounds like the immune system, but what we're talking about here is a synthetic sentinel, engineered bacteria. So Dave, how have these microbes been altered? Well, these microbes already sort of have a taste for tumor, as it were. They, if you inject them into a body, they burrow into tumors and they start eating away. What the researchers wanted to have happen is when this happens, for a certain proteins to change within the bacteria that would sort of give off a signal that a cancer or their tumor that was present. And they worked with a strain of bacteria called E. coli nisla. 1917, which sounds dangerous, but it's actually not. It's, this is a bacterium that's commonly added to yogurt and other foods as a probiotic, which a lot of people are familiar with. And what they did was they engineered these bacteria so that when they did detect and start eating away to cancer, they would produce this red fluorescent protein. And this was in mice, and the idea was the mice would eventually pee these bacteria out and instead of their urine being yellow because of the fluorescent protein, it, they would actually be red. They did introduce these bacteria into mice, and they did flag the presence of cancer. How sensitive were they to cancer in mice? It was pretty sensitive. Current imaging techniques struggled to detect, let's say, liver tumors, which they were looking at in the study, smaller than one square centimeter. But this approach was able to flag tumors as small as one square millimeter, so a lot more sensitive. Okay. And another team did something similar for diabetes patients. How did those microbe friends work? Well, with diabetes, you've got extra sugar in urine. And so in this case, the researchers actually didn't add microbes to the body, but they actually added it to the urine after it was excreted. And again, they were able to show this color change when the bacteria were interacting with this excess sugar. And now, is that a better method for detecting glucose than what we have now? It's actually about the same. They saw similar results. But what it hints at is that they could further optimize these bacteria to actually improve the results. And they could use it for other diagnostics as well. Okay, great opportunity here for cat stories. I'll start. I had a cat that wouldn't eat chicken or tuna. He was completely satisfied with his cat food. Thank you very much. Then some people who remain nameless got a hold of him, and now he loves all foods equally, be it butter, turkey, Indian food, whatever. But not all cats can make this switch, Dave. How picky are your cats? They are pretty picky in weird ways. We have a cat that eats bell peppers. Nice. <laughs> and another cat, our, our male cat Jasper, who you can actually see a picture of on the site, uh, 
likes marshmallows. <laughs> oh, wow. So, uh, so we know that cats, you know, obviously have different tastes, but do cats do have a reputation as picky eaters? And what this study is really all about is can we identify just why cats are picky eaters and maybe use that information to make them less picky? Right. So getting to the science here, what do we know about cats' sense of taste? Well, you know, studies have been published that show that cats can't taste sweet, which actually Based on my marshmallow example, I have a hard time believing, but that's what the science says anyway. So we already know that apparently cats can't taste sweet, but we really don't know about their response to bitter, which is what this study is about. And in the study, they looked at the bitter receptor on the cat tongue. Right. How did they do that? Well, they looked at a couple receptors. One known as TAS2R38. These always have great names. And the other one is TAS2R43. These are a couple taste receptors. And they actually didn't look in cats themselves, but they actually looked in cell culture. So there was no taste testing at all. There was no taste testing, unfortunately. But what they found was when they exposed these receptors to various bitter compounds, some of which which are similar to compounds in Brussels sprouts and broccoli, others similar to compounds in the aloe plants, and yet others similar to compounds that are actually added to other compounds to make people not want to eat them because it tastes so bitter, they found that the sensitivity of the cat receptors was a lot different than what they saw with the analogous human receptors. Are cats especially susceptible to bitter flavors? Well, they couldn't make any sort of conclusion that general. What they did say is that that it's possible that cats have a different response to bitter than we have, and perhaps a more narrow response, which means that maybe there's a smaller range of bitter flavors that trigger them, maybe that they can detect than we can. So this is not the answer to why cats are picky eaters. This is not going to be the breakthrough to get your cat <laughs> to eat more food, but what it will hopefully lead to is better knowledge of the types of things that cats will eat. That could not only help broaden their diet, but also even things like creating more appetizing medicines, which for anybody who's tried to pill a cat is actually could be a very important advance. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story about why some stars live in clusters and others are loners. Also a story about a new test that could tell you every single virus you've ever been exposed to in your life. And for Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a new initiative to spend $15 billion on clean energy in the United Kingdom. Also, we're continuing our coverage of an ongoing controversy in Hawaii over efforts to build one of the world's largest telescopes. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Friction can be friend or foe, helpful in keeping tires on the road or our feet on the ground, but potentially harmful to moving parts and machinery. Though an everyday phenomenon that we all experience, friction still holds its mysteries. I spoke with Alexei Belinsky about his efforts to explore friction at the atomic level. Friction is the ubiquitous force that resists the motion of two objects in contact and results in energy dissipation. To understand friction at the most basic level, so the level of atoms, we have devised a synthetic frictional interface where we put a crystal of a few trapped atoms serving as our object in contact with a crystal of laser light serving as our substrate. And we can track each atom at this frictional interface and arrange them in a way that is either matched or mismatched to the substrate. We show that the mismatched arrangements result in superlubricity, an elusive regime where the system becomes almost frictionless in the sense that there is no longer any sticking and slipping of the atoms on the substrate. Just to get to the very basics, what is friction? Friction is 
basically the force that resists the motion of two objects in contact. And it can be static friction, where the two objects are simply stuck and you can't move them by applying a force. Or it can be kinetic friction, which basically is a force that resists motion when the two objects are moving or sliding. And the kinetic friction is the friction force that results in this large energy dissipation. And the process that we are studying is actually both of those types of friction. We're studying the sticking of the atoms to the substrate, and then after the critical force is exerted, they slip when the kinetic friction results in energy dissipation. What's so mysterious about friction? Why, you know, it's so ubiquitous, we experience it, it must be taken into account in so many, so many systems. Friction is everywhere. It enables us, for example, to walk on the ground, yet it works against the motion of our car engines or any other mechanical systems. Yet we do not fully understand it and cannot easily control it because the phenomenon depends on many material parameters and many length scales, from the scale of one or a few atoms to the macro scale. Even at the scale of a few atoms, the strong forces between the atoms and the strongly nonlinear nature of these forces makes the problem of understanding friction overwhelmingly challenging. It acts at so many different scales, it's really hard to understand how it will operate in different systems? That's right. There's many, many atoms involved and many, many scales involved. And the task that we have undertaken is to really look at the most basic atomic scale and try to understand the phenomenon from the bottom up, from the basic atomic interactions. Can you describe your setup for us a little bit more? What were the two surfaces that you were going to be rubbing together, so to say? Mm-hmm. It is very difficult to study friction from the experimental point of view because the atoms that you're interested in are usually at the interface between the two objects, so they're sandwiched there and hidden from view. Hmm. Uh, so resolving and tracking individual atoms in the friction process might seem impossible, but it becomes possible in our synthetic frictional interface because our object is just a single chain of atoms trapped in vacuum, and they're spaced by micrometers as opposed to tenths of nanometers, making it easy to see each one of them with just a big lens and a camera. The atoms form a chain because they're ions, so they're positively charged and repel each other, but the repulsion is balanced by the electrical trapping forces, resulting in this one-dimensional crystal or chain. And the second half of our synthetic frictional interface, or the substrate, is just a standing wave of laser light that is exerting sinusoidal sticking force on the atoms. We can track these individual atoms because the fluorescence that they emit is proportional to the position of each atom with respect to the substrate. So they emit light if there is some kind of push on them? Basically, they emit light when they're on top of the sinusoidal potential barrier, and they emit less light when they're at the bottom. And so the fluorescence that they emit is modulated by their position in the substrate. When I think of friction, I think of two solid things, things made of atoms. Uh-huh. But you're uh-huh. using one thing made of atoms and one thing made of light. What made That's you right. decide to do that? The standing wave of laser light basically represents the forces that would be felt by the atoms in the object due to the atoms in the substrate. So our substrate isn't composed of atoms. It's composed of this synthetic potential which captures the basic physics of the forces you would feel from an actual substrate with atoms in it. It's a simulated friction. You're not actually observing friction here at the atomic level. That's right. There's an emulator which captures the basic physical ingredients of a frictional interface at the atomic level, but has some assumptions and doesn't have all the elements in it. So what were you able to learn from your, your emulation of a friction situation? So the takeaway message is twofold. First, when the spacing of the atomic lattices of the object and the substrate are matched, in other words, when the atomic spacing is a whole number 
of substrate spacing, then the two lattices lock or stick, whereas if they're mismatched, they can slide smoothly relative to each other in this frictionless manner called superlubricity. The second lesson is that this works with only a few atoms. Even a two-atom contact can be tuned to be superlubric. This is important because if you zoom in at the interface between two objects, the surfaces are rough and contact each other through islands that are a few atoms in extent. Does this mean we can use this information to design materials differently to reduce or increase friction as needed? Uh, I think that indeed these lessons can be taken to engineer the contacting mechanical components in nanomachines, for example, so as to eliminate these detrimental sticking forces or the opposite, to introduce them where they are needed. One can either choose the materials to make those mechanical components out of, such that these materials have mismatched or matched atomic lattices, or one can even engineer the materials to make these atomic lattices matched or mismatched. Well, Alexei, thanks so much for talking with me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Alexei Belinsky writes about simulated friction in this week's issue. I'm Sarah Crespi. Soldiers, Pompey and the Senate have formally declared that Gaius Julius Caesar is an enemy of Rome. Despite Hollywood, we'll never really know what Julius Caesar sounded like to an audience of thousands, unaided by modern amplification. But acoustical scientist Braxton Boren uses 21st century techniques combined with Benjamin Franklin's 18th century investigations into the reach of the human voice to model the acoustics of some of history's loudest and most compelling orators. I'm Suzanne Bard. Braxton, who was George Whitfield, and why did Benjamin Franklin take a scientific interest in him back in 1739? George Whitfield was an Anglican preacher who was kicked out of the established churches in England in the 1730s because he had a very radical message of free grace and anti-hierarchical views that the established church did not like very much. And because of that, he began preaching in the open fields to whoever would come hear him, which was unheard of in the well-established British church at that time. Because of this, he ended up drawing much larger crowds than would have been possible in interior locations that he had been preaching at previously. He was also said to have had one of the loudest voices of anyone of his generation. People said that he had a voice like the roar of a lion. Even people who were not devotional listeners came to hear his voice simply because they loved the way his voice sounded. David Hume, the skeptic and Scottish philosopher, would come to hear him just because of the spectacle of the large crowds that Whitfield attracted and hearing his voice bounding out over the crowds. So the crowds that he attracted peaked in London in the summer of 1739, and the reports of the crowds started out in maybe a few thousand, and they grew to 10,000, then they were reported at 20,000, 30,000, and there were a few incidents that were even estimated at 50,000, and one even at 80,000. And across the Atlantic Ocean at this time, Benjamin Franklin, who was the editor of the Pennsylvania Gazette, was skeptical of these numbers as the requisite as a scientist, he decided that when Whitfield came to the Americas to preach in Philadelphia, he decided to actually try to quantify this. So Franklin stood at the back of the crowd and then continued walking backwards, and he recorded the point at which Whitfield's voice ceased to be intelligible. And so using that complete intelligible distance metric, he estimated the area of a semicircle with that as its radius and tried to figure out how many people he thought he could fit into that much area to try to figure out how many people could have heard Whitfield field. And he reported that crowds of 
25, 30,000 seemed reasonable because of that. If you actually follow his math all the way through, his density estimate is very, very high, two square feet per person, much, much more dense than modern crowd estimate techniques would assume that a large crowd could ever be. So if you actually follow his math all the way through, he actually gets a number something like greater than 100,000, but he only reported 30,000, maybe because of his New England modesty. So using Franklin's data, we were able to construct a computer model working backwards from Franklin's position to figure out how loud a speaker at Whitfield's position would have had to have been. And the number we came up with was about 90 decibels, specific kind of decibels we use when dealing with the human voice. And this was very surprising because actually there's an international standard for loud speech that is somewhere around 74 decibels. So this is 16 decibels higher. If you know anything about decibels, you know they're on a logarithmic scale. So this is actually a very, very much greater sound pressure level that was being generated by Whitfield's voice. And at first we thought we had made a mistake because we weren't actually sure anyone's voice could be that loud. But we did a series of experiments with trained actors and opera singers and confirmed that the loudest of the trained vocalists that we encountered were able to reach levels right about at what we had estimated for Whitfield's voice. And so using that, we were able to do simulations of his crowds and confirmed that Franklin's estimate of 30,000 seems reasonable under a variety of conditions, under the most ideal acoustic conditions that we could possibly imagine. Maybe crowds of up to 50,000 would have been possible to hear him at once if they were all extremely silent. Fascinating. And how do you go about recreating or modeling something so specific as an outdoor oratory space? I mean, what are some of the acoustical parameters that you have to factor in here? There's quite a bit that goes into it, and a lot of the times we have to turn to archaeological evidence. So we need data about the reflective surfaces. What would the geometry of the space have been like, and where are the sound reflections going to be along these paths? How much sound approximately would have been reflected and how much absorbed by these surfaces? And then we need to know things about the atmospheric conditions. In the colonies at this time, there was no day-to-day meteorological data recorded like we would have today, but we do have sort of month-to-month average data from some people who were experimenting a little bit later with the very new technology of that time with the Celsius thermometer, which had just been invented. And because of that, we can sort of estimate what the temperature and some of the environmental conditions would have been that also affect the sound propagation. And it's not just a matter of knowing that someone is talking, but also making out what they're saying, right? And sometimes it's hard to do that, even if someone has a sound system today. Yes. So then we get into a question of what is the minimum threshold of intelligibility that Franklin was sort of subjectively describing. And we're using an international standard called the Speech Transmission Index, which characterizes the intelligibility of an acoustic system based on a number of factors, the signal strength, the background noise, and the amount of reverberation effects that end up confusing you. And so the speech transmission index goes from zero to one, one being very good intelligibility and zero being no intelligibility. So we use sort of a standard value of 0.3 as the cutoff of intelligibility for our base calculations. And we take modern amplification for granted today, but what was the social significance in historical times of being able to be heard by that many people at one time. 
I'm actually taking some of the things we learned from Whitfield's example and applying them to specific speakers and leaders that we know from ancient Greek and Roman history. And all of them needed to be able to address their constituents. It was extremely important that they study rhetoric and oratory to be able to speak to an entire crowd at once. Without amplification, any human gathering was effectively limited by how loud their voice could be and how clearly it could be heard. Let's talk about a few of these people. Some of them will be familiar to our listeners. What did you learn about their crowds? I'm looking at ancient Athens, and especially Pericles and Demosthenes. Demosthenes was a lawyer and a leader and sort of cultural commentator. Pericles was also a statesman and orator, but especially a general who led the Athenian state during the Peloponnesian War. And both of them were known for giving speeches to the Athenian assembly, as well as funeral orations in the Athenian cemetery when they were burying their war dead. Demosthenes has probably the most subjective evidence for being one of the most articulate and well-heard orators of all of ancient history. We know, subjectively at least, that Demosthenes seems to be one of these extremely high-level speakers who could have been heard by quite a lot of people all at once. So historically, the Athenian assembly, the sort of citizen government of the city, would have all met on a hill, and when each person's turn came to speak, they had a tradition of free speech, but if they didn't think you knew what you were talking about, they would just all shout at you, and then you would have to stop eventually. And sometimes even Demosthenes puts in little quips to ask people not to shout him down. <laughs> so in those cases, we know that there's a lot of background noise, and when there are thousands of people listening to you, if they're all shouting at you, you're not going to be heard. <laughs> so it requires a pretty quiet environment. Historical estimates for the size of the Athenian assembly range from 6,000 to 13,000 for seating area, maybe as high as 20,000. And based on the simulations that we've seen before, and a lot of these sort of very open free field situations, the geometry doesn't change very much. Then not a lot of variables actually change between them very much. So we can say that if the crowd was reasonably quiet, you wouldn't even have to have been as loud as George Whitfield was to be heard by 6,000 people. So that seems very reasonable. Meanwhile, the funeral orations that Pericles and Demosthenes gave, this would have likely been a larger crowd because we know that women, the widows, especially of the war dead, were invited to these. So it's more of a public gathering and less of a private governmental function. So because of that, it seems likelier that we would have a crowd on the order of 20,000 or so. And for Demosthenes, at least, if the crowd was really leaning in and trying to hear him, it seems likely that he could have been heard by a crowd of 20,000. And you also looked at speeches that leaders made before ancient battles. Yeah, the famous war harangues. This was a tradition that was taken very seriously. And on the eve of battles, or maybe right before the battle, when two armies were about to face each other, their leaders would give a speech to sort of psych up their warriors for whatever was going on. And this was actually the occasion of Benjamin Franklin's experiment. He says in his autobiography when he's describing it, actually, I was really curious about this because I read all these accounts in ancient history of generals haranguing their entire army. And I thought, how in the world could this entire army have heard them? But he said, after I did this experiment with Whitfield, it actually reconciled me to some of these accounts of them speaking to 25,000 people in the field at once because of the importance of knowing how big your army is, a lot of these accounts actually give much more specific numbers about how many people were in the armies at once. So tell me about Alexander the Great. 
he did give addresses to his men, but it actually specifically says that he gave separate addresses because his army was made up of people from so many different parts. You know, he had the Macedonians and he had the Greeks who he had sort of conquered and then brought along with him and some other mercenaries. And he would sort of give different speeches <laughs> to different parts of his army because he wanted to make different points stick with them based on where they were from. So it's unlikely that any specific section he was speaking to numbered more than 10,000. And again, Again, Alexander, we know, was trained by Aristotle, who wrote the book on rhetoric, literally. <laughs> and it seems likely Alexander, also being a fairly young guy during these campaigns as well, would have been able to have been heard pretty clearly, especially as he was addressing these smaller sections of his army. And the last case, of course, is Julius Caesar himself. And he actually gave a speech after his loss to Pompey during the, the Roman Civil Wars at Dyrrhachium in 48 BC. And this is in Caesar's own account of the Civil Wars. Um, but Caesar specifically records himself collecting his army into one place and speaking to his entire force of about 15,000 people. And this was sort of the night after the battle where he's trying to cheer up his army after a loss. And we do actually have some subjective accounts from Cicero that Caesar was a very excellent speaker and devoted himself to the art of oratory. So we have reason to believe that Caesar was pretty loud, that he was a good orator and enunciator. And so in this specific case, especially, it seems very likely that he was able to speak to his force of 15,000. The only really big battlefield speech that Caesar gives is a little bit later during the Civil War before Pharsalos, which is his big victory over Pompey, where Caesar is said to have given a speech to basically his entire force of between maybe twenty and 22,000 soldiers. And assuming he was very, very loud on the order of George Whitfield and his army was very, very quiet, this could be acoustically possible, but I'm actually looking for ancient Roman scholars who know more about this battle, and it might require further simulation to see exactly whether this account could have been true or if maybe it was him dramatizing the event afterwards when in reality maybe he just rode alongside the lines and gave a shorter speech multiple times so that everyone could have heard him. Perhaps, you know, all of the blood and adrenaline running in his mind, he conflated them uh, later on when he was writing his account. It must be really interesting to take a look back and piece together the practical realities of some of the events you read about in history books. What are you working on next? Now I'm starting to branch out from ancient history and look into some of the medieval battles as well. Henry V at Agincourt, for instance, and also Abraham Lincoln, the Gettysburg Address. Thanks for speaking with me, Braxton. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Braxton Boren is developing computer models of the acoustics of historical outdoor spaces. He recently presented his work at the spring meeting of the Acoustical Society of America. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? 
AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.